0: Happy holidays, happy new year, happy whatever it is that makes you happy. My guest today is Becky. And for those of you who know me well, uh, you remember that I actually call my brain Becky. And uh, Becky is a control freak, a retired control freak, obsessive, overthinker. Becky tends to be grumpy like every other brain on earth. She tends to bring the negatives of everything. She sort of misses The positives of the wonderful life that we've been blessed with. And I heard Becky a couple of weeks ago uh, asking if I would consider having her as a guest on Slow Mo. And so, of course, as I thought of this idea, I asked, What would you talk about? And she basically said, Let's just have a, a long conversation about the year 2020 in review, about slow mo and all of the wonderful wisdom that we found uh, from our guests through the year. And of course, as I have completely revamped my relationship with Becky over the years, uh, as we sort of agreed the terms of how to do things together, I thought that would actually be a good idea, to sit alone with Becky and reflect on 2020 in review. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, and uh, I hope that you find a few nuggets of wisdom in it. So this has surely been a tough year. I mean, there is no doubt that, at least for me, this has been probably the most unpredictable, the most challenging and difficult year that has ever crossed humanity in my lifetime. And I think it's uh, true for so many people that this also is the case, that this is a year where we had to uh, revisit, review a lot of things that we've sort of never really thought about before, things that have just come upon us totally unexpectedly at the beginning of the year. The one thing that I felt 2020 invited most was an opportunity for reflection. And, you know, we'll talk a lot about reflection through this conversation, But an opportunity for reflection on one thing in specific, and that thing in my view, is the fact that it's the first time, at least in my lifetime, where humanity was so unified under one threat, one challenge, that did not differentiate, did not discriminate, that treated all of us equally, maybe harshly, but all of us were treated definitely equally. And in the way 2020 unfolded, Even though we were all exposed to the exact same challenge, it's quite eye-opening that some of us responded very differently than others. And I think if you look around you at people that you love, you would recognize that some of them took this year as the worst thing that ever happened to them. They became challenged. They became negative. They may have rejected quite a bit of the year, and they may even have gone to extreme sadness or depression as a result of the freedoms that have been revoked, the stresses that we have been exposed to, and so on and so forth. But also, if you look around you, you would see that some of your best friends and some of the people that you know and love have actually seen quite a bit of silver lining in 2020. As a matter of fact, some people will say, despite the harshness and despite the compassion for those who may have suffered severely during this year, it might actually be one of the most eye-opening, impactful years of my lifetime. And I wonder which one of those you are in, and I think it's important to reflect and see exactly where on the scale between actually seeing the value and being grateful for what 2020 has brought, despite the challenges, and you know, on the other extreme, being very, very upset about everything that took place, I think it would be quite wise to find out where you stand on that spectrum. Having said that, I think the eye-opening view of that reminds us, of course, of the happiness equation. And if you are familiar with my work in Solve for Happy, I basically say that happiness is extremely predictable, that happiness is the result of a comparison that happens in your brain between uh, events and expectations, between how you think the way life is unfolding, your perception of the unfolding events, minus your expectations of how life should actually be, how life should treat you, as if there is a way life should behave. But when you compare those two, the difference between them determines your happiness or unhappiness. So the happiness equation, just as a reminder, is your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and your expectations of how life should behave. And when you visit the reality that some of us reacted differently to 2020 than others, it's not because 2020 was different for some of us in the way it treated us, different than the way it treated others, but it's because mainly the way we solved our happiness equations were different. Some of us solved it in a way that resulted in, I see the good and the bad. I see the challenge and the opportunity. I see the deprivation of some of my freedom, but I also see uh, the gift that I have been given. And some others failed to see that as they solved their happiness equation. And perhaps that's why they ended up in a place where they were much more unhappy about the year than others. Now, of course, in no way am I underestimating or undermining the challenge that 2020 has brought. I mean, it's definitely been a tough year in terms of the stress that it brought, the change to our lifestyle, the negative economic impact. Of course, the fear and worry and anxiety about loved ones and about what would happen and if this will ever end. And of course, While I don't undermine any of that, I want to look at this year in the view of the happiness equation. And so let's dive deep, a couple of centimeters deep into the happiness equation, again, for those who are not familiar with my work on it. So when happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between events and expectations, That calculation that constantly happens in your brain almost nonstop, whenever a slight change in the event of your life happens, your brain goes and compares that slight change to its expectations, and it tries to understand if that misses or meets your expectations, and as a result, if it should make you happy or unhappy. And with that, you would arrive at a very accurate definition for happiness. And that accurate definition in my work is that calm and peacefulness that you feel when you're okay with life as it is. When your brain compares the event of life to expectations and finds that life meets or beats expectations, then you feel happy. You feel peaceful. You feel okay. You might not be jumping up and down like you are in a party. You might not feel elated or excited, but those are different. Those are not happiness. Those are what I call the state of escape. The state of escape, which includes pleasure, fun, exhilarating activities, which are normally reasons for your brain to stop solving the happiness equation long enough so that you actually engage in that pleasure, overwhelming concentration on, a, on an extreme sport or whatever that is. And as you do that, you stop solving the happiness equation long enough to find the state of peacefulness, a state of who you are deep inside, which is happy. Now, of course, with those definitions, you have to realize that happiness is not fun. And I think one of the things that affected us very, very significantly for those of us who suffered so much in the lockdown is that distinction between happiness and fun. When we think about happiness, we remember that happiness is associated in our biology with the hormone that is known as serotonin. And serotonin is actually a calmer. It's exactly what the happiness equation is described to do. Serotonin is in your system When your brain checks the world around it and realizes that everything seems to be okay, there is no need to be worried, there is no threat that seems to be imminent. And so the serotonin gives you the signal in your system to actually rest, relax, sit down and digest your food, replenish your muscles, and basically stay calm. Fun, on the other hand, pleasure and activities that create that excitement and pleasure in us, this is associated in our bodies with dopamine. And dopamine is an excitatory, it's a reward hormone that comes into our systems to sort of tell us, keep doing more of what you're currently doing while it's actually not related directly to an immediate threat on your life, I like it. It's good for me. I want more of it. And so when we get dopamine in our blood, we're excited. We are sort of motivated to do more of it. And the thing about dopamine though, is that once you have the excitatory in your system, the calmer goes away. So when you have dopamine in your blood, you no longer have serotonin. And if you don't have serotonin, then you can't feel that genuine happiness that is needed. Now, of course, the other problem with dopamine is that you also sort of get addicted to it. So your brain, the more dopamine you have in your blood, the more your brain sensors sort of downregulate. They go like, too much of this, I shouldn't feel that this is too much, so I'm going to assume that this is normal. And so accordingly, every time your dopamine levels would decline a little bit, what you would end up doing is you would rush for more of it. And that, I believe, was one of the biggest reasons why some of us really suffered during lockdown. When you were used to a lifestyle where you're constantly rushing around, getting the kick of closing a deal or meeting a client or even catching the train on time, you get a little bit of a dose of dopamine and then you complement that with going out in the evening and meeting with your friends and having a couple of drinks and having a lot of fun and dancing a little and all of that excitement when we were forced to lock down, for some of us, it became quite difficult to actually drop all of that dopamine rush and sit with ourselves and actually accept the company of our own selves in a way that allows us to reflect and to accept and to be calm. By the way, I'm, I'm in no way actually against dopamine. I'm in no way against having fun and having pleasure and having joy. I'm actually advocating that happiness should happen first. You should find the reasons for your unhappiness, work on them and reach a stage of happiness before you rush for dopamine and fun and excitement. Because when you do that, dopamine doesn't become a painkiller anymore. It doesn't give you a high and then wear out and then you reach out for more of it. So more parties, more activities, more exercise and so on and so forth. Rather, you would be content regardless of those things. And then when you add those things to your life, you feel happier, you feel more as if you're taking a supplement, a vitamin that keeps you healthy when you're already healthy. Similarly to the distinction between fun and happiness and, and the fact that happiness is actually not fun, there is a distinction between what I call pain and Suffering, And when you really think about the happiness equation, the happiness equation triggers unhappiness, triggers negative emotions, whether those are worry, anxiety, fear, regret, shame, whatever negative emotion to get your attention when the event misses expectations, or at least the perception of the event missing expectations is what your brain decides is the situation. The difference between them, though, is that pain is actually triggered by an event. Pain happens when you were supposed to travel and do business and go to work, and then suddenly they lock you down. Your brain actually recognizes something is not right. This is not what I'm used to. It could be a threat to me. And so I'm going to trigger a bit of worry or a bit of anxiety or a bit of withdrawal and and unhappiness so that it alerts you almost like a fire alarm that something is wrong. Now, when a pain happens, of course, everyone that I know feels sad, feels unhappiness, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama or, you know, some of my very Zen guests on slow-mo, Robert Waldinger or Matthew Ricard or Uh, Hainam Sunam, and all of those are well known to be people who invested in their calm for years and years and years. But if you ask any of them, they'll tell you, of course, we feel angry, we feel worried, we feel all of the negative emotions, because it's an actual natural response that we need in our life. The difference, however, is that they don't extend the pain into suffering. And that's really important to understand. Pain happens from outside you. Just like physical pain, when you cut your finger, you withdraw your hand away because the reason for the pain is to actually protect you, is for you to take action. So as much as we dislike pain, it's good for you. Now, of course, the challenge is what do you do after the pain? When it comes to emotional pain, We seem to have an ability, a built in system in us that I call the Netflix of unhappiness, unhappiness on demand. Because, you know, something happens in March which basically says my way of life has changed. I'm now into lockdown and my lifestyle has to respond to that. I'm under a bit of threat from a viral pandemic. And so I have to change some of my habits. And you get that in March, but you're able to keep recalling that over and over and over and over. Even though the event is exactly the same, you can actually revive your worries. You can revive your anxieties. You can revive your regrets, you can revive your disgruntlement with the event on demand by creating thoughts in your head that make you unhappy. And I always wonder what the use of that is. Because when you think about a fire alarm, a fire alarm is all about alerting you that something is wrong so that you take action. Now, if you actually leave the room, then one, you become safe and two, you no longer have to suffer the noise of the fire alarm. But with suffering, with repeated unhappiness, that doesn't seem to be the case. Your brain alerts you that something is wrong. And instead of doing something about it, we sit there and ruminate about it, bring it up over and over and over and over. Just like saying, remember that show on Netflix, I'm going to play that again and torture myself. One of my favorite conversations on slow-mo was with uh, Donald Robertson, which uh, is a world renowned expert on stoicism. And we spent a bit of time, if you recall, on the dialogue at the end of Pluto's Apology, which really is a big part of the, you know, reflects a big part of what stoicism is all about. And one of the most important points that I recall getting out of that conversation was the idea that nothing is gained as a result of suffering, that nothing is gained as a result of unhappiness. And I think this is really, really important because when you see it that way, you start to recognize that this repeated playback of events is an attempt of your brain to say, we haven't resolved this problem. Can we please do something about it? And so accordingly, what is expected, if you wanted to show resilience and solve the problem, is to actually take the action. And I think taking the action is something that we will come back to as I talk about the illusion of control, but it's something that I think is really important for us to realize is needed at the situation we are in now. Of course, another thing that we spoke about, Donald and I, which I think is fundamental to understanding what we're going through here, is the idea the Marcus Aurelius quote, if you remember, the universe is change and life is opinion. And I think this statement summarizes in very, very, very precise words Why is it that so many of us are suffering during the current times? And in general, by the way, why suffering seems to be reoccurring so frequently? It's because of the idea that the universe is change, and yet we don't accept that, that everything in life is bound to change, the illusion of control, as I call it, when we don't accept that. And life is opinion, which basically is the illusion of knowledge. It's the idea that we think that our opinion is truth. And if our opinion is truth, then maybe it warrants our unhappiness, even though there is nothing to be gained from unhappiness. And so when you think about the universe's change and life is opinion, in my work, I basically called those the six and the seven. If you remember the six, seven, five model that was trying to explain why is it that we wrongly solve our happiness equation. The 675 model basically says there are six grand illusions and seven blind spots that cause us to think about the world not exactly as it is. And because our thoughts are what generates our happiness or unhappiness, this is again the reason why some of us reacted to the pandemic and the lockdown differently than others, because we thought about them differently, then those seven blind spots and six grand illusions are what sort of blurs our judgment and gets us to the point where we start to think that something is wrong, and when sometimes actually that's not the entire truth. So of course if you remember the seven blind spots are not actually bad mistakes in the way our brains work, but the truth is they are features of the design of our brain. They are parts of the way our brain is supposed to work because your brain is a survival machine. Your unhappiness is a survival mechanism. And so your brain is attempting to see what's wrong with everything. Find out what's wrong because it's more important for survival. Nobody, as I always joke, nobody will react and you know, if a tiger shows up by saying, oh my God, look at how majestic that animal is. Your brain is not interested in the beauty of that animal. It's interested in, we're going to die. And we're going to die becomes not only tigers in the modern world, we're going to die if we're locked down, we're going to die if we get vaccinated, we're going to die if we're alone without friends for a long time, if we're going to die if we can't go to the pub or the, or the bar and so on and so forth. And you know, some of those might be true, some of those might be worth your concern, but most of them are not. And the seven blind spots, those design features in your brain are constantly trying to get you to see what's wrong and they succeed. So six to seven out of every 10 thoughts in an adult brain are actually negative. So six to seven out of every 10 thoughts in an adult brain are actually negative. And you have to wonder, is it even conceivable that six to seven of the events of every 10 events in your life is bad, is threatening for you? I mean, if that was the case, would you be with us right now? And you know, somehow, is it is it even possible that you're listening to me on an electronic device that's connected wirelessly to the rest of the world, as you have the safety and the time to slow down and listen to a podcast, is it even conceivable that in that situation, six to seven out of every 10 things around you is wrong? Or is that an actual proof to you that it must be that six to seven or maybe nine to 9.999% of everything that is in your life is actually okay? that the majority of life is okay. The six, on the other hand, are the more pressing reasons why we solve our happiness equation wrong. And I want to talk about two of the grand illusions in the context of the lockdown and some of the incredible conversations some of our guests brought to the idea of those six grand illusions. So the six grand illusions, again, as a reminder, are those simple belief systems, concepts that we associate with in the modern world that help us navigate the modern world for success. And unfortunately, they do help us achieve success, but because they're illusions, they're not actually true, they also make us unhappy. And the two that I want to talk about are the illusion of knowledge and the illusion of control. So when I interviewed uh, my dear, dear friend Tal bin Shahar to talk about happiness, I jokingly said, So, Tal, you know, you're very eloquent in the way you describe happiness. So why don't you just summarize to us happiness in a few words? And he looked at me and he said, You know that, Mo. And he basically said, Well, it's I give you three words. All of happiness is summarized in three words. And I said, What are those, Tal? And he said, The truth, truth, truth. All of happiness is found in acknowledging and accepting and realizing and reacting and dealing with the truth. And when you really look at it this way, you understand why so many of us have suffered so much during the pandemic and the lockdown, because we did not always have the opportunity to actually recognize and deal with the truth. And, and let me summarize to you what I normally term as the four processes that lead us to deviate from the truth. One is we fail to see the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Two is we fail to know or to acknowledge that most events that we consider good or bad are actually very difficult to recognize. They're very difficult to actually know what is good for you and what is bad for you, especially if you allow time to pass by. Three is that we forget how much worse it could be. Somehow, when we look at things, we think that this is horrible, Because we don't actually think of how much more horrible it could be. And I think if you see that part of the truth that relates to your own situation, you're missing out the truth that relates to the actual reality of the possibility of the situation. And that does not give you an accurate view of the full truth. And then, of course, we forget the reality of life, the big truth. And the big truth is that a bit of harshness, is actually the way the game is played. It's not an error, it's not a mistake in the way the game is played. It is the actual reality of how the game of life is actually played. And so let me take you through each of those four deviations, four reasons for deviation, and try to see those through the lengths of the pandemic and the lockdown. So let's start with, we fail to see the truth we fail to see the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Rick Hansen, the world-renowned neuroscientist, and Dan Siegel, the world-renowned scientist, when we chatted, you know, we spoke extensively about the negativity bias. The idea that our brains, as Rick always calls it, are Velcro for bad news and Teflon for good news. They they hang on to everything that is wrong and they, they sort of reject and wipe away everything that is good. And when you really look at the reality of COVID-19, you start to realize that we've been badly affected by this in 2020. We've been holding on to everything negative so strongly and actually failing to see what is positive. So let me give you a few Pointers, a few data points about what the reality of COVID 19 is. Of course, it's a disaster. Of course, it's a challenge. And of course, if you've lost a loved one or suffered from COVID 19 yourself or maybe lost your economic livelihood and are seriously challenged economically, then it's definitely a disaster. It's something very, very difficult that warrants a lot of unhappiness. But that's not what all of us have experienced. What all of us have experienced, the majority of us, other than basically 1.6 some, 1.68 million people as I record this, and the ones close to them, which were the ones that were lost in COVID-19, the rest of us, the rest of the seven plus billion people around the planet have not experienced serious loss, with the exception of those who have lost their economic livelihood and really, really are struggling to survive, which again is not the majority of us, for the rest of us we're okay even even though we lost a lot of our ability to generate cash myself included we've also lost a lot of the purchasing power reasons the calls to spend money on dinners and commute and you know junk food as we're at work and so on and so forth but let me go to the facts because I think the facts really matter so if which doesn't seem is going to happen But if at the end of 2020, we had lost in total 2 million people, there was a statistic around the world that would actually amount to COVID-19 being the sixth cause of death on the planet. I think, as I said, we're currently at 1.68. I'm recording this very close to Christmas. So, you know, we may end up with 1.75 or hopefully 1.7 or whatever. And that is probably going to be in the maybe 10th or later cause of death in the world today. And the reality is, even though, of course, we don't want any cause of death to affect our life, the truth is we die. We humans, we suffer from viruses. We suffer from accidental death, We suffer from so many reasons. And eventually, many of us, you know, eventually leave the world. As a matter of fact, in 2019, more than 55 million people left our world. And when you really think about that, that's close to four and a half, five million people dying every month. You have to understand that more than 1 million people, one close to 1.5, so almost close to the number of people that died as a result of COVID-19 die every week. And I don't say that to depress you. I say that to acknowledge the truth that hopefully we live good lives, but eventually we're going to leave the planet. And when you, when you think about COVID-19, being positioned by the media and by governments as such a big issue at 1.68 million deaths so far, while the reality is out of more than 76 million diagnosed or reported cases, most of them recovered, 76 million, of which only 1.68 die, then there is a silver lining. There is a truth to this. More importantly, I will say, and I say that again, to blame the media, to blame the way we report negativity, is to tell you that the number one cause of death is not slightly higher than COVID-19. The number one cause of death for most of the 20th century has been a heart disease. And heart disease kills 17.9 million people. That's more than 10x the number of people that died this year as a result of COVID-19. You know, malaria for years and years and years and years have killed between half a million to a million people every year. And we seem to have ignored talking about all of this. We seem to have ignored putting the spotlight on those stories, but rather focused, -focused, hyper-focused, over-focused on the negativity of something that seems to be pandemic and scary and new. We also ignore the fact that There seems to be measures that can protect us, that social distancing seems to reasonably work when we adhere to it, that masks actually help us, and that there are ways that we can overcome this. We seem to forget that humanity was hit with the Spanish flu, not a very different kind of virus in the 1920s, and that we managed to recover, that we, without any technology at all, just by social distancing and being careful, we've managed to overcome that we tend to forget that there are other respiratory diseases, pneumonia, for example, and other diseases that killed more people this year than COVID-19. And so why am I saying all of this? What I'm saying is maybe we're panicking a little more than we should. Maybe, of course, there is reason to worry because there is the unpredictable, the unknown about this new thing that is happening. But maybe if we actually just focus on the truth, we should be talking about pneumonia a little more. We should be talking about heart disease a little more. We should be talking about the rise that must have happened, but we're not reporting about in suicide, in depression, as a result of all of the measures that have taken place in our world during this pandemic. We tend to forget the truth. And the truth is we're human. And as humans, we get sick and we die. And I I think the idea is that we tend to exaggerate the negativity. The media found that loophole in the human brain that keeps you stuck in front of the BBC and the CNN and Channel 4 and all of the news networks, that loophole that basically says because our brains are so interested to keep us safe, they will listen more to what's negative. And when I hosted my dear friend, Karen Guggenheim, the CEO and co-founder of the World Happiness Summit, I told her, so Karen, what are you doing about this? And she said, well, Mo, I I schedule my anxiety. And I laughed. I said, what what do you mean schedule your anxiety? And she said, look, I know that all of the negativity of the news is not good for me, but I can't live without being up to date. So I decided I will schedule between 2 and 2.30 every day to watch the news or listen to the news, and then I will stop, so that the rest of my day remains positive. I will have learned and known what I need to take care of, and I don't no longer have to stress myself with the constant negativity. And I I remember in my head, I laughed. I was like, okay, I I scheduled my negativity between two and two ten, like nine months ago. And I know that people go like, are you crazy? But I promise you have not watched the news since April. I have not once watched the news since April. Like, what do you mean, Mo? Yeah, of course, I don't need all of this. When the announcements a couple of days ago happened in the UK, my friends texted me. They told me, oh, by the way, we're going to be locked down. This is what the prime minister announced. And that's all I need to know. As a matter of fact, if you ask me, I don't even need to know that because, you know, I'm now staying in Dubai for a while. So what's happening in the UK is, at best additional information for me that I can actually not react to. I cannot do anything to affect. And I think the choice of prioritizing what it is that you need to know against what it is that they need you to know, to make that choice, that conscious choice of, I'm only going to do what's healthy for me. From Karen's conversation, I think this is a very wise choice. Just like you don't eat crap all the time. You don't allow into your body bad food and poisons. You should actually not allow toxic positivity, negative news, toxic internet. You should not allow horror movies, violent movies. You should make the choice not to allow those into your life. And that, I will tell you, openly is one of the reasons why I could focus on the positive sides of my life rather than the negativity of the news. So this is the fact that we fail to see, to recognize the full truth. Let me talk about number two. And number two is that we also fail to recognize what's good and what's bad. And the good side of bad is something we intend to forget. And I often talk about asking you to recall the hardest times of your life. And if you would ever erase them, if I gave you a technology to take them out of your life, and most of the time, 99% of the people I ask will say, of course I'd erase it. And I say, but it will erase everything that happened as a result of that event in your life, all of the development, all of the people that you met, all of the decisions that you took, all of the things that you learned. It will erase all of that. It will erase the person that you are right now if you erase the harshness that happened in your life before. And and most people will then say, in that case, maybe I will keep it. I will keep that bully. I will keep that horrible boyfriend. I will keep that time when I lost a loved one. Like I now say openly, I if I could erase Ali's death and erase the millions, tens of millions of people that were happy as a result, would I do that? That's an interesting, that's an interesting question. If you if you erase one billion happy by erasing Ali's death, or maybe continue one billion happy and wait until the time when Ali hugs me and says, well done, Papa, well done, you've used it well. Now, when we start to think about the reality that we don't see the good, if we introspect and ask ourselves what good came as a result, I'll tell you, Alexandra Cousteau and my wonderful friend who's dedicating her life to saving the environment spoke about how massive of a difference COVID-19 has done to our environment. The fact that we have wildlife coming out everywhere, the fact that we have the air cleaning up and the Himalayas being viewed from 300 kilometers away, and all of the positivity that came as a result, how can we ignore that? And Alexandra actually, when We were talking afterwards, recommended to me one of my favorite documentaries of all time on Netflix, a documentary uh, called The Biggest Little Farm. And in that documentary, I started to see how this young couple attempting to farm in the traditional ways and let nature take its course, how they struggled to accept that the presence of the coyote in their farm actually adds value to the farm, that, that the coyote would actually hunt the gophers and the gophers, while they add air to the soil so that the trees can grow, they also eat the roots. So some gophers are good, but too many of them are not great. And, and having the coyote in there might actually balance that out. The, the birds that come to eat the fruit will attract the owls and the owls will balance everything out. As a result, I, I posted on Instagram, a short post in the series that I call, I wonder. And I basically asked myself, I wonder, if COVID-19 is just the disease, or is it also the cure? Is it making us sick, but fixing, healing parts of our life and our planet? And I think one of the most beautiful, beautiful stories about that was my dear friend, the incredible Jamie Nelson, when, when he spoke about how he, through his life, would travel the furthest corners of our planet to try and connect and be accepted and find love with the most remote tribes that are known to exist on planet Earth. And then when COVID-19 hit, he would go out with his son every morning to the park around the corner from his home in Amsterdam and talk and laugh and then lie on the ground, watch the sky, holding hands. And he would say the blessing of COVID-19 the blessing that allowed him to find that incredible connection to the people that are dearest and closest to him. We fail to recognize all of that upside when we force our brains to look only at the negative. And there are upsides, there are silver linings. Another thing that really affects our judgment when it comes to our view of the truth is we fail to recognize how much worse things could be. So let me try to summarize this to you in a data-driven, practical way. I am 53. I was born in 1967. And this is the first pandemic I have ever lived through. It's not the first economic crisis we've had so many economic cycles, but it's the first pandemic that I've ever lived through. And that you know should trigger the fact that you have to think to yourself, 53 years of no pandemics, that's a blessing not the fact that one year of pandemic is a curse. But let's just be practical here. If I was born in the year 1900, not 1967, what would I have had to face until age 53? I would have had to go through World War I, the Spanish flu, World War II, the Great Depression, and uh, smallpox. And if you add those up together, by the time I would have reached age 50... Uh, they would have claimed the lives of more than 900 million people. 900 million people in a world, by the way, where the maximum, the peak population between 1900 and 1950 was around 1. 1.7. So that's more than one of every two people that you know would actually be affected by this. And no technology and no communication around the world and no Zoom to connect with anyone. You know, so much uncertainty. And all of that reminds me so strongly of how blessed we are. I don't know how we can ignore that fact, but I'll say it openly, and please don't be upset with me. I said, if you've been diagnosed with COVID-19, if you've lost someone that you love, or if you've lost your economic livelihood to the point that you're suffering, then our heart is with you. You have every right to feel unhappy. But if you're not one of those three, then you should only see this as a blessing. The way your brain should look at this is a view of gratitude, is to be able to say, oh my God, the world is so difficult. There is so much going on and I am safe, my loved ones are safe and my ability to sustain my family still exists. If you haven't been one of the three sufferings, if you haven't experienced one of those three sufferings, then the only truth is your fortune. And when you really start to think about things this way, you start to realize that maybe, and I say that openly, and I please, please don't be upset with me, that maybe the extent of the pandemic, to those who haven't suffered one of those three, is we've been forced to stay at home and binge watch Netflix. This truly is as bad as it got for us. And if we can't have the resilience in us to be able to deal with this, then I don't know what our expectations from life are have become. There is still so much more to cover about this pivotal, pivotal year. So why don't you take a short break now? Maybe go get yourself a warm drink and come back and join me and Becky as we reflect back on 2020.